chapter 15. I want to open up the teaching this morning with a little bit of a qualifier. Uh, I've said this uh, in Sundays before, that at Calvary Chapel we teach verse by verse through God's Word. So where we wind up in God's Word is by God's design, not our own. So the things that we need to talk about are the things that God has not only put in His Word before us, but hopefully has prepared our hearts in advance for it as well. And I, I want to say that this morning, especially because we're going to be talking about the, the topic and the subject matter of loving one another. And it can be a, a wonderful thing. It can also be very convicting <laughs> as well. As I went through it and prepared for it this week, I was like, wow, you know, I'm feeling a little beat up here myself on this. But yet I know that God would use that in love and to encourage me, to encourage all of us. Uh, in his word. So this morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 12 through 17, and I've entitled the teaching Chosen and Appointed. Chosen and Appointed, and we'll see why as we get into the text. Uh, So let's read, starting with verse 12 in chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Uh, If you were to think this morning, how many songs are written about love? The the question is really impossible to answer, isn't it? Because love is one of the most common themes there are in in music. There are millions of songs about love, I'm sure. Losing love, finding love, missing a loved one, wishing for love, searching for love, being grateful for love. For love, looking for love in all the wrong places. We're probably familiar with that. The same would be true regarding poems and books about love, wouldn't it? How many of you here have a shelf in your home uh, where you have bookends? How, how many of you have bookends in your home? Most of them, if we, if we have a number of books, most, most of them are matched, aren't they? Because it's just kind of bizarre to have two different kinds of bookends doesn't even really fit the theme of bookends, does it? It's just kind of, that's just strange. And what purpose do they really serve, bookends? What what do they serve? Well, we know they keep things straight, unless you're one of those design types that, you know, we have one of those in our house. Obviously, it's not me. Uh, They keep things straight. Uh, They keep things easily accessible, don't they? You know, there's the book. I I can grab it. But the most important thing, is that they hold up that which is in between, right? Bookends, they, they hold up that which is in between. Looking at verses 12 and also verse 17 in our text, we see the love one another bookends, don't we? The, the scriptures that we're looking at, on one end, love one another, and on the other end, love one another, and they support or hold up the text that's in the midst. 
So keep that in mind as we're going through this this morning, that the focus on both ends of what Jesus has to say here is what? Love one another. In verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, we've looked over the several weeks now, months probably, uh, this scene in the upper room. And we saw a couple weeks ago as we finished chapter 14 that they were leaving the upper room and they would be moving towards the garden. And so Jesus is spending some intimate time with his disciples. He's spending time teaching, encouraging, counseling. He's going through this to encourage them because of what it is that they're going to be going through over the next, not only 24-hour period, but over the next week or so. Their world is literally going to be rocked because uh, that the, the person who they've been spending so much time with uh, for almost three years is going to be crucified. And he's going to be buried in a tomb. And they're going to be left wondering what in the world is going on. And so he's spending this intimate time with them. He's been teaching them. But we're going to see what I believe is probably the most important lesson for them at this time. In the, our text this morning. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Keep this in mind. This is a direct communication to his disciples in the message that he has for them. He's telling them, commanding them, those are who are his disciples to do what? To love one another as he has loved them. If we call ourselves Christians, which we do, those of us that have been saved by Christ, those that are of us that are truly his disciples, then they are his disciples, and we are to what? To, to love one another as he has loved us. So two of the key ingredients in correct Bible interpretation is to ask a couple questions. Who is it being said to, and what is being said? This makes sense. Love each other. He, he's speaking to his disciples them and us. How many people have we ran across in churches? Uh, I've asked this before, but again, how many of you have been in a bad church experience? How many of you feel like you're going through one right now? No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I dare you. Raise your hand. <laughs> we've all been there, haven't we? We've been through a situation where it's, man, it's just a bad church experience. But ask ourselves, how many people have become uh, disenchanted or disappointed or disinterested in Christ and the Word of God because of modern-day disciples who won't love each other, that won't love each other? They're, this message is for us this morning. It, it truly is, all of us. Uh, like I said, as I went through this this week, it made me ponder Boy, do I, do, am I holding any, anything against another brother or sister in Christ? Uh, do I know of someone that might be holding something against me? And Lord, open up my heart to what it is that you might be saying to me. So we need to love each other. We know that's throughout Scripture, but certainly we see it in the book of John. John chapter 13, we saw in verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also have love for one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It, it's, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? People are going to recognize you as my disciples if you have love for one another. 
And it, we really, we have to ask ourselves, how can we possibly be an effective witness to those around us, around us who don't know the Lord when those of us who do know the Lord don't even get along? Because we don't love each other effectively, appropriately. Now, I want to qualify all of this by saying this, that I am so thankful <laughs> that we are growing together as a loving family. This, this little place, Calvary Berthage, we're growing together in love. We just are. I mean, I, I love all you guys. I don't know everything about you guys. So I still love you guys, you know. <laughs> and even if I were, were to learn everything about your sordid past, uh, I would still be required by God to what? To love you, wouldn't I? Because that's, that's what God says. We're to love one another in spite of, of one another. But as a family, we all know how families work, don't we? <laughs> Sometimes we don't always see things the same way. We don't always get along. We don't always agree on things. Look at the person on your left. Look at the person on your right. They're strange, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're weird, aren't they? We, we could use that word. They're just weird. But weirdness, as we all know, is, is a relative concept. And I'll explain. What happens to you may not be weird to you, but it may be weird to me. We could all agree with that. If normal things happen to normal people, then that's normal. And if weird things happen to normal people, that's just weird, right? So then if weird things happen to weird people, that would be normal. Which means that if normal things happen to weird people, that would be weird. Thus, weirdness is a relative concept. So in light of that, if it makes you wonder if the weird things that I encounter are actually weird or not because I'm already a little strange, then I'm pretty sure those weird things don't really happen to normal people, or at least they think they're weird too. Maybe even weirder than I think of them. Are you following my logic on that, or are you just saying, that's just weird. The whole thing is ridiculous and weird and strange. But we make a call about others in our, in our Christian walk, don't we? They're strange. They're weird. They're bad fruit. <laughs> we, we, we do that. We have a tendency to do that. So bottom line, what is it that we are using as a measuring stick, an, an assessment device, to come to that conclusion that someone's weird or strange or not acting the way they're supposed to. What are we using to measure that? Most of the time it's ourselves, isn't it? They're just not acting like we would act. <laughs> you know? Sometimes that maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But most of the time we know it's not about strangeness or weirdness. Most of the time it's about our concept of right and wrong. How they how we think that they should act or react to a certain situation. What they said, what they did, well, that's just not right. We might, yeah, but you don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they said about me. You don't even know what they did to me. And many Christians today, many churches today, because of that, they'll discontinue fellowship with each other. And the reason? Many times, if we want to be honest with ourselves, many times it's an abundance of pride and selfishness or a huge lack of love selflessness. Now, that happens on both sides, doesn't it? 
it's just not us, it's the other person that's involved as well. We have to be honest with ourselves about that. Something could have been done that was totally selfish on their part. And we see it for that, and we call it as that. Jesus here is talking to who? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to us. So, okay, we all, we all get it. <laughs> We're commanded to love. Have you ever heard of a well-meaning Christian disciple say this about another disciple? Well, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. How many of you have you heard that? Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> For one, it's nowhere in the Bible. Uh, we like to say that. But it's more really a rationalization on our part to excuse our own selfishness and pride, isn't it? It, it, it just is. It just, it's just the way that it is. But well, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. <laughs> it's like, that just doesn't even make sense, does it? What if God used that principle? Well, I commanded it a long time ago, and i got to love them. Well, I sure don't like them. Now, we think that that's probably true <laughs> to, to God sometimes. I don't think God likes me very well, us as sinners, if he was basing whether or not he likes us or not on our sin, he wouldn't really like us at all, would he, ever? <laughs> you know, but he loves us, and it's a love that goes beyond our, even, uh, our comprehension. It's a love that he wants us to have uh, towards each other. We're commanded to love each other as Christ loved us. And there's never been any other person in history who was more wronged by others than Jesus. If you want to take the ultimate wrong from someone's life, look at the cross. He loved others perfectly. He never sinned. And he was crucified for it, for us. So Jesus was the only person in history who could have been justified in having what we would call a victim mentality, right? He could have been justified in having that because he never did anything wrong. But yet he was crucified for it. And we're thankful for that because we know the result of him uh, willingly going to the cross for us. When we look at our situations with others in that light, it should cause us to reassess our situations. Imperfect people, us, accusing imperfect people, others, of being imperfect people is us. <laughs> Does that make sense? We're imperfect. We're sinners saved by grace. Accusing others of certain things, calling them imperfect and sinners, because why is it that we would recognize that even? That's just Because <laughs> it's in us as well, right? So it causes us to reassess, or should. Am, am I loving them the way that the Lord has commanded Again, who are the them referred to here? Other disciples, other believers. I think that's a real key for us to understand this morning because Jesus is talking to who? His disciples. And he's saying to them, love one another. Why? They're about to face some really tough times, aren't they? They're going to go through some tough, tough times. So he's in commanding them to love one another, encourage one another, and build each other up, love and live together in unity in himself because of these tough times that they're going to be going through. Realizing, as you look at what takes place after all of this, he uses this 11 to start 
the movement which we would call Christianity, doesn't it? It was birthed, certainly, first and foremost, in Jesus Christ, but then through his disciples, these 11 guys that turned the world uh, right side up, actually, not upside down, but he used them to do that. And we know that as you look at it across history, because of what he did through them, we are recipients of that. So any message that he has for them is a message for us. Just It's just common sense, right? So he's commanding us to love one another, encourage one another, build each other up, love and live together in unity in Jesus Christ. So sometimes that's hard to carry out practically, isn't it? It's, it's just difficult. We're dealing with these weird, strange, difficult people. <laughs> and how do we carry it out practically? Romans 12.3 says, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So I don't know about you, but the first thing that jumps out to me when I read that verse is the not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And I've done that. I'll, conf- I'll confess. I've done that. I certainly have thought of myself pretty highly at times. Um, never really ever do that on purpose, but yet sometimes I have done that. Paul says in Philippians 2, chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He goes on to say, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Like blankets. (laughs) That's a perfect example, isn't it? Be caring for, looking for opportunities to bless someone else, to encourage someone else in the love of Christ. As his disciples, as his friends, he has given to us a code of conduct, if you will, in how we relate to his other disciples and friends. How do we relate to each other? Well, verse 13 tells us what it should be. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So you might be wondering, How do I lay down my life for someone else? We see what Jesus Christ did, don't we? It's like, well, I just really want to do that. And there was no purpose in doing that. He has done that for us. But he wants us to lay down one's life for his friends. He's telling his disciples, he's telling his friends that at this point in time, again, because of what's going to be taking place over the next couple days. And he wants them to see and to know and to understand He is living this out. He is laying down his life for his friends, these 11 disciples, and all of those that would call upon his name. So how do you, how do I die for someone else? It just doesn't sound like a very pleasant thing, does it? To die for someone else. How do I lay down my life for them? Dying to self. Unfortunately, the world wants to tell us that we are the most important person in their lives. And we act like it sometimes, don't we? You know, we, we do have those times when, you know, I'm pretty important, you know. I'm, 
think about it like this. But think about it like this. Those of you that are married, if you're married and you think you think that you're the most important person in the relationship, that's really not proper love for your spouse, is it? If you think, well, I'm way more important than my spouse, just practically that just doesn't work out very well as a human, does it? <laughs> it just doesn't. It's selfishness on your part or the part of someone else. It's just doing that. You're focused more on yourself. You give yourself more attention. You see yourself as more important. It's, it's what about my needs? What about my wants, my desires? Time to call the ambulance, isn't it? That's not selfless. It's selfish. We all recognize that. I realize that what I'm sharing this morning is very basic things that we all know, that we all understand, but that as we go through God's Word, He wants to remind us of these things, doesn't He? Love is the difference between selfish and selfless. Selfish is all about us. Selfless is all about others. And this verse is about who? This last verse that we just looked at is about what? Friends. Laying down your life for your friends. If we can't effectively lay down our lives for our friends, other believers, other disciples, how can we possibly affect the lives of unbelievers? In our lives together as disciples, as friends in Jesus, how we love one another should be a testimony, a witness to those around us who don't know the Lord. How many of you run across someone, you know, that's, that, that has been burned in the church for one reason or another, and they say, well, I don't do the church thing anymore. It's full of hypocrites. You know the best way to answer that? You're absolutely right. <laughs> it's full of hypocrites and sinners. I mean, we're sinners, aren't we? We mess up. But what they're really saying is, you say that you are this, but as I look at you in your life, it doesn't reflect that which it is you're trying to you know, promote here. It just doesn't always match up, does it? Jesus laid down his life for his disciples. He laid down his life for his friends. Those that he was speaking to in this text, these 11 who were his disciples, his friends, we said he'd use them to impact the lives of countless countless others. Jesus was the initiator of love, of the love relationship that we have with him. We would all agree with that. Jesus was the initiator of us becoming one of his disciples. Jesus was the initiator of the friendship that we have with him. How many of you remember a few years ago the Casting Crown song, Who Am I? You guys remember that song? Uh, the bridge leading up to the chorus, not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Just great four lines to describing what Christ has done for us. He says in verse 14, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And what is he commanding us to do here? Love one another like he loves us. It's a tall order. We would all agree that his commandments are his enablement. He gives us the capacity to love. Back in chapter 14, we talked about Christ told his disciples that he was going to send them what? A helper. And this helper would be available to help with whatever help we needed, <laughs> right? 
He was going to help us to be able to carry out His very commandments. So His commandments are His enablements because He's given us His Holy Spirit to help us carry those things out. Last week we saw that if we keep His commandments, He says, we abide in His love. Not that His love for us is predicated upon our obedience to Him, but that our obedience to Him shows our love for Him. We know that. We know that when we're following out, being obedient to what the Lord has instructed us to do, it's proving our love that we have for Him, isn't it? It it just is. He is overjoyed with us when we're obedient to Him. But it's not His love for us isn't predicated upon our obedience. Thank God. (laughs) Amen? Because we know that we are a stiff-necked, disobedient people sometimes. And His love isn't predicated upon that. He loves us for the cake itself. But in this verse, He specifically reminds us that as His friends, we are to do what He commands. And His commandment here, again, is to love one another. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from the Father I have made known to you. Jesus is and should be master and Lord in our lives. And as we know at this time in the life of Jesus, as, uh, as he's ministering to his disciples here, the master-servant relationship was a very familiar thing to them. A servant was in place to serve the needs of the master. It would be almost unheard of at that time for a servant to actually become a friend of the master. That, that just wasn't, that wasn't even proper in that time. A servant was a servant and was a subservient to the master. And a master didn't communicate the big picture to the servant. You know, it wasn't like he called all the servants together and said, okay. This next year is going to be a good year, and here's what we're looking forward to doing. I want to share my mission statement and my vision with you, the servants, so you fully understand why you're doing what you're doing. That would be a great thing if they did communicate that, but very rarely, if ever, did that happen, right? The master knew what he was doing, and very rarely, if ever, was it ever shared with the servant. The servant was just commanded to do his part. Be obedient to the last command given by the master. Go do this, go do that. But Jesus breaks through that with this verse. He says, I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends. Who's he speaking to again? The eleven, the disciples. Who's he speaking to again? Us, as disciples. And because you are my friends, I am going to reveal my plan to you for the salvation of all who will believe. Now, we don't understand everything that there is to know about Scripture, right? Uh, God's Word goes very deep. He gives us great insight into His Word, but some things are still kind of left a mystery and unknown, and that's what makes God God, I think. We can't fully grasp, fully understand that. It's another one of those, if we did, you know, our heads would blow up, right? But He does give us a lot of information. He does give us a lot of insight into His plans and His purposes, one of which is what? The redemption of the world. We've been saved. He wants others saved. 
not only reveals that plan to us, but also does what? Makes us a part of it. Because we're his friends. He says, I'm going to reveal my plan to you for the salvation of all who will believe. And since you are my friends, I'm going to make you a part of seeing it come to pass. That's just, that's just so cool. That God's got this ultimate, the ultimate plan to carry out throughout the whole world, and he makes us a part of it. That just, that just blows me. Really, Lord? Me? You know me. I'm, you know, I'm a mistake looking for a place to happen, and yet you still want to use me. That is awesome. While you are doing it, he says, I want you to, I command you to what? Love one another. That's the book ends, right? Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And that was interesting as I was going through this. There were some uh, pastors with uh, a much more depth and knowledge of the scriptures that would take this to a place that I just really didn't want to go. And that was, you get into the whole Calvinism and Arminianism as it applies to this particular verse. <laughs> We're not going to go there this morning because I think it's very plain and simple in front of us. He chose us, right? He chose us. Think of it as Jesus saying it in this way. I love you and I chose to reveal my love to you. So you just responded to my love. Wouldn't we agree that that's how it all came to pass? And you can say, yes, I was predestined, you know, all these different things. I agree with, however, he chose us because of his love for us. We recognized the love that he had for us, so we responded to that love. I think that's the simplest way to put it. So he said, yes, you chose to respond, but I chose you first. I loved you first. So because he, he's going to come out on top, no matter how you cut it, <laughs> it's, it's initiated by him. It was my love for you that initiated the relationship. You just responded to it. But he also says, I also appointed you. I chose you and appointed you. Which means we can't appoint ourselves. How many of you have ever run across a, a self-appointed pastor or bishop or a a lot of times it's an apostle. We'll use the term apostle. That always just kind of bothers me a little bit. Uh, I'm not saying that there isn't maybe some biblical credence to that, but I think when you're saying, I'm an apostle, <laughs> that just bothers me. I don't, I don't know. I understand if you say, I'm a disciple, I'm all on that. But for whatever reason, when someone says, I'm an apostle, it kind of takes me to that point of, well, you're trying to put your, insert yourself into one of the eleven. So I struggle with that. I'm not going to make a blanket statement here and be dogmatic and say that's 100% wrong. What I'm saying is it, it just bothers me. There's a lot of things that bother me. There's a lot of them we're not going to get into today. But <laughs> like I don't like cats, okay? I don't know about you guys, but I don't like cats. <laughs> they bother me. And they, they, they're not named correctly and everything, you know. But so his love initiated the relationship. We just responded to it. But he also appointed it. We can't appoint ourselves. We can only be appointed by Jesus to do the will of the Father. Jesus is saying, you are my representatives, my ambassadors, my disciples, my friends. 
And I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. We talked about the fruit thing last week quite a bit. And this fruit that he wants us to bear is grounded in his love. It's grounded in, Jesus would say, my love for you, your love for me, your love for each other, and your love for other others. Now I want to clarify that statement because <laughs> we are to love others. In this particular passage, those others happen to be others that are like us, disciples of Jesus Christ, but there are these other others which are unbelievers. Do you follow that? Because I need to give you another uh, take on that. My love for you, Jesus says, your love for me, your love for each other, and your love for other others. So we are chosen and appointed to be fruit bearers or disciples, his disciples, his friends. And Jesus makes us aware of what happens eventually. But because we are his friends, his disciples, he involves us in his work presently. We know what's going to take place eventually, but we're involved in the work presently that he has for us. And he also says in this verse that whatever we ask the Father in the name of Jesus, the Father gives us. Now, we've talked about this before. This is the kind of verse that the prosperity gospel teachers just run with, don't they? They like to land on these things. But if you balance a verse like this on the full counsel of God's word, you see that it applies if what we are praying for aligns with his will. It has to, right? Always. Jesus prayed to the Father in the garden that if it be your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Which is a perfect example of how to pray about certain things to the Father. If it's your will, Lord, let this cup of suffering be taken from me, but, but not my will, your will, be, your will be done. It could be the cup for us, the cup of conflict, the cup of confusion, the cup of whatever, and it's not our will, it's his will that needs to be done. And that will needs to start off with, to finish, the command of loving one another. Jesus wasn't on his own agenda, but he was on the Father's. He was submitted to the Father's will. So we are to be submitted to Jesus and his will. We are appointed to go and bear fruit, fruit that glorifies the Lord and not ourselves, fruit that's rooted in love. So many times for us, we'll be in a situation or aware of a situation, and we wonder, well, I think it should kind of go down like this, but the question that we should be asking is, Father, what is your will? How can you be glorified in this? And what is it that you want me to do? And it's always going to start off with what? Love for one another. He's chosen us, he has given us his helper, the Holy Spirit, and he has appointed us to go and bear fruit. And it can only be effectively accomplished by doing it in love. Now also I want to say that we're going to run into situations that the love that we have for someone means that we're going to give them what? The truth. Jesus came to us in grace and truth. And we always want to to do whatever we're going to do in love, which is going to be covered in grace. But there's nothing wrong with us giving a person the truth. If we love them enough, that's what we will want them to see and hear, right? The truth. And the truth should always come from the Lord. 100% of the time, not something else, not some uh, psychology book somewhere that tells you this is the way to 
it being fun. <laughs> the road is the subject of the verse, as it were. But God's word is always the truth, so we want to take them to the truth, let the Holy Spirit do his work in their lives so that they can see that truth. And if a change needs to take place, that change comes from God working in their lives, us showing them truth, us showing them grace, but God working in their lives to show them what it is that they need to change and do, right? Even if they're weird, even if they're strange, <laughs> God has the work that he wants to do in their life. And if he chooses to use us, we better be in a place where we're doing it out of love according to his will. In Matthew 22, when the lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So loving God and loving others. You see that on the banner out in our coffee shop area. That is the original mission statement of this church, Calvary Berkeley. Loving God, loving others, and making disciples. Because I believe, I think you would agree, that if we're loving God effectively, appropriately, correctly, loving others is not a really a big deal, is it? Because we're already plugged into, as we talked last week, we're connected to the vine. We're loving in a way that pleases the Father and the way the Father would have us love someone else. So loving God, first and foremost, loving others becomes very easy. And who are the others? The others are the other others and the others that we know as disciples of Jesus Christ and the others being unbelievers. But loving God, loving others then would encompass who? Everybody else. <laughs> loving God, an appropriate, uh, practical love that we have for the Father, for all that we know that he is and doing in our lives and loving others because of that. So loving others, you might say, is in direct proportion to how much we love God and how much we're showing our love to God. I think it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have the necessary love for others who are unbelievers if we don't effectively love those who are already believers. And that's where we see most of the damage done in the church today, isn't it? Very seldom do you have unbelievers coming up and saying, well, I experienced this in church, somebody wronging me. And most of the time, the unbelievers just aren't in church. You know, So you've got those unchurched groups, but then you've got this church group that loving one another is not carried out appropriately, so they're burned by it. Not to say that part of that isn't their problem as well. I'm not certain it is, but what are we supposed to do? We're commanded to love one another. We should believe that. Again, these verses this morning, very important for us to see that, that Jesus says love one another. He gives us all that we've just looked at, and then he dots the I, crosses the T, caps it off with another. Love one another. Jesus can't say it enough. We can't hear it enough from him just because we know that it's something that we need to do. As I said at the beginning, this is this can kind of be a hard message in some way because we know it hits home with every single one of us and how we relate to people. It really does. But if he says something like this again and again and again and again throughout his word, then we know that, boy, there's something to this in the way that we're supposed to love one another. This is 
essential in our Christian life and how we relate with one another. And as I said before, I, I am just thrilled to, to be in a place where we love one another. He says in verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Turn with me as we close to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's going to be up on the screen too if you want to watch it from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're all familiar with this passage of Scripture starting at verse 4 because it gives us the definition of what love is. And we're all very, very, very familiar with this. This is nothing new to any of us. But in light of what we've talked about this morning, look at these verses. And you've heard this said before, that you could substitute the word love with use. And it would fit perfectly, wouldn't it? However, (laughs) if we insert our own meanings into this passage, uh, it gets very humbling right out of the gate. Jim suffers long. And it's him, not us. So, as we're reading through this, insert your name in there and see how, how you do. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Uh, let me stop right there for a second. And husbands and wives, go on to the next one. <laughs> Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, out of all of those love statements there, that last one I want to focus on just for a second. Love never fails. Jesus tells us to love one another. If you equate those two together, what's going to happen? If we love one another effectively, appropriately, practically, it will never fail, will it? He's telling us the love that I have for you, which is a perfect love, if you take that love into the life of someone else, if you love them like I love you, it'll never fail. Meaning that whatever purposes or plans he has for us or for another person, By loving them with that kind of love, his will is going to be carried out, isn't it? His will is going to be carried out anyway. (laughs) But he's giving us the opportunity to be a part of that work by extending us, stretching us out to love others 